Hey there, welcome to Seeker Plus, where we take in-depth looks at topics over the course of three episodes. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and for this series, we're going to talk about what's been called the single most complex construction project in the history of humanity. A structure nearly as big as an American football field with a price tag in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and yet, at its most full, it's only ever housed 13 people. I bet the space nerds have already figured it out, and I mean, anybody who looked at the title of the series for that matter, that's right. Our topic is the International Space Station, better known as the ISS. And who better to tell us about it than two people actually living aboard the station itself. Uh, hello, guys. Can you hear me? We have you loud and clear. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Ooh, that gave me chills. That's NASA astronaut Shane Kimbra and ESA astronaut Thomas Pesquet, and they really are no fooling up in space. Look, I'll, I'll prove it. Hey, uh, can one of you guys do a backflip or something? Uh, we can do a couple things for you. See, like I said, space. Well, unless you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, in which case... You're just going to have to take my word for it. We connected with them while they were off the west coast of Morocco. Now, as the crow flies, it's not the longest distance phone call I've made. At least not yet. NASA graciously let us borrow these important spacefarers for 20 minutes, so we'll see where they are by the end of it. Keep in mind that in order to keep the ISS's average altitude at about 420 kilometers above the Earth instead of you know, zero kilometers above the Earth, they have to travel at 28,000 kilometers per hour, or eight kilometers every second. These astronauts go around the Earth 16 times every 24 hours. Also keep in mind that the ISS is massive, much, much bigger and heavier than anything else humans have put into space. The United States' first space station, Skylab, that clocked in at 75 metric tons. Russia's biggest solo space station, Mir, almost twice as big as Skylab at 140 metric tons. The ISS, nearly 420 metric tons, three times bigger than Mir. So how did it even get up there in the first place? Well, the simple answer is piece by piece and with a lot of cooperation. In the 1990s, the Cold War finally thawed out. The Soviet Union collapsed, and relations between Russia and the U.S. were looking up. As it happened, the space agencies of both countries had been working on space stations of their own for some time, and neither of them could seem to get off the ground. Russia's Mir-2 had been in the works since the mid-70s, while the U.S. program was slowly getting whittled away with budget cuts. The U.S. space station's name, by the way, was Space Station Freedom, which is the most 1980s American thing I've ever heard. Anyway, in 93, the two space agencies decided to take what they had and combine them into one station. The first piece to go up was the Russian-built segment Zaraya, launched on November 20th, 1998. Zaraya, by the way, is the Russian word for dawn, so hooray, symbolism! The first piece built by the U.S. was carried up by the space shuttle two weeks later and was named Unity. Again, symbolism. Although, for me, the most symbolic part of all of this is the fact that the Russian rockets were originally conceived to carry nuclear weapons, but now they were carrying pieces of a space station that would be forever locked in a mechanical handshake with their former enemies. That and one of them carried a Pizza Hut logo. 
I'm serious. The next piece was delayed a few years, but when the Russian Zvezda service module finally launched, the rocket had a Pizza Hut logo slapped on the side. The publicity stunt reportedly cost Pizza Hut $1 million, which suited the Russians, who really needed the funding. If you're wondering why you've never seen a NASA launch that looked like a NASCAR driver's jumpsuit, well, they have a policy against it. But what's more a sign of the formerly communist East and capitalist West coming together than a 30-foot-tall Pizza Hut logo on a Russian rocket, I ask you. Anyway, once Zvezda connected to Zoraya, the space station could function as a home for humanity in space continuously. And since November of 2000, that's exactly what it's done. Still, it had a lot of growing to do, and it did so in both directions, with Russian modules extending from Zoraya, while modules from NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency branched off of Unity. The Canadian Space Agency contributed a robotic arm that was used to help with assembly, as well as for grabbing spaceships and guiding them to the station. When this happens, by the way, it's called berthing, not docking. So a fun fact I learned researching this. The arm has the same grabber on each end, so it can walk end over end around the space station like the craziest slinky you ever saw. And while other agencies chose these symbolic names like Dawn and Unity, Canada called their arm Canadarm. You gotta love it. To give all these pressurized modules and robotic arms power, the station uses enormous solar panel arrays connected to a long truss. Today, the truss is connected to the Destiny module right by Unity, but over the course of the station's assembly, pieces of it had to be temporarily in other places. Really, the whole assembly process was like the most high-stakes game of musical chairs in history. This is where Shane Kimbrough comes in. Uh, remember the NASA astronaut? I introduced him a while ago, but then I talked for a long time, and I'm sorry about that. But I needed you to appreciate his work. His first space flight was to the incomplete ISS in 2008, and he actually helped build the station. That was a, a while ago when all that new equipment came up back then. Um, and during our, that short mission, it was only about 10 days we were attached to the space station for that mission. So we really just delivered the equipment and hooked some of it up, but we didn't get the, the chance to utilize any of it. So on my last mission and on this mission, it's been great to actually be able to use those things, uh, use the gym we brought up as well and other systems. So it's been really great to see the station grow uh, and kind of mature over these last couple of decades. And uh, to be a small part of that is pretty cool. The main workhorse that delivered the largest pieces to the station was NASA's space shuttle. It was so vital, its operational life actually had to be extended in order to finish the ISS. Finally, in 2011, the space station was complete. Well, complete. It's not really the right word, because it's still getting updated today. Which poses an interesting problem. Remember, the very first pieces launched in 1998, with some components dating back to the mid-80s. How do they make a Frankenstein monster of technologies from five different decades work together? You would think we'd have the latest and greatest technology, but honestly, as robust as, as most of the equipment has to be in the testing process it has to go through, we're just by default not going to have the latest and greatest. But we have some really good stuff. Like we just installed some new solar arrays on a couple of spacewalks, Tamai and I did, that are really boosting the energy of the space station, and it will for, for years to come, which is pretty special to be part of that. Uh, we've just recently also upgraded some data and connectivity issues, you know, issues that we had. That's all kind of upgraded now. And a lot of that's not just for our personal use 
on computers, but it's the space station and mission control teams around the world can send data back and forth and make sure that we're you know, keeping the space station where we're supposed to be in the right orbit and in the right attitude and orientation and those sort of things. So uh, we, I would say we are relevant and we're current. We're not certainly the latest and greatest in technology, unfortunately, for us, but uh, that's just the way it is. But uh, we've been doing that for, again, many decades, and uh, it's proven to be a great system. By the time the ISS was finished, the price tag to launch and assemble all the pieces was a whopping $100 billion, making it the most expensive single object humanity has ever built. It's so expensive, Jeff Bezos could just barely afford to buy two. That's, of course, before factoring in the cost of running it, which for NASA is about $3 to $4 billion per year. And yet, I still don't think we appreciate this glorious hunk of space metal enough. Sure, it's huge, 420 metric tons, as I'm sure some of you remember, but it's all the way up there in space, 420 kilometers away, as I'm sure the same group of you also remember. It's hard to appreciate the gravita of it when it's whizzing by so far away. So I asked Tama Pesquet what it was like for him when he saw the fully assembled station for the first time in 2016 as he was approaching it to dock in the Soyuz spacecraft. Uh, it felt like I was in a, in a science fiction movie. It felt like Star Wars. Uh, you know, when they get to the Death Star, like this huge, big, all those huge, big battleships that float in space. That's what it felt like. The Soyuz is pretty tiny. Uh, I mean, it's one and a half tons that come back to Earth. But still, you get to the station. I remember seeing the solar rays from the corner of my eyes from the side, uh, the side window on the space station. And they, they seemed so far away. And then I could see the, the entire structure of the ISS. It really felt unreal. Like it's a feat of engineering, like something so big so complex really actually does exist in space and that shocked me and it got real for the first time when I, when I got this view on my first flight that was unbelievable. Which brings us nicely to today. Now that the station has been fully operational for over a decade, just what have they been doing up there? Is the station an expensive vanity project or is there more to it than that? Now we're going to turn our attention to the ISS today, and there's no one better to tell us exactly what's going on up there right now than, well, people who are actually up there right now. Astronauts Shane Kimbrough and Tama Pesquet agreed to talk to us for this series because, well, NASA volunteered them and there's not really anywhere else for them to go. They're sort of stuck with me. Unlike you, you chose to be here, so hey, thanks for that. Shane and Tama aren't just steely-eyed missile men capable of performing complex tasks under pressure in a hostile environment while speaking Russian, they're also scientists. The ISS is, after all, a laboratory unlike any other on Earth, where experiments can be conducted in microgravity. Several of the modules are dedicated laboratories, and astronauts have compared the station's research capabilities to world-class universities. Science isn't just done inside the station, but on the outside, too. The station's exterior can host 20 different experiments to study things like new materials and particle physics. Research conducted on the ISS has affected you, even if you don't know it. A couple of the ones that we've worked on recently that uh, you know I, I kind of like are one uh, we do a lot of medical research up here and we're just you know we're partnered with the researchers and we we help them out with their data. One of the ones that we've done recently is worked with uh, the Duquesne's muscular dystrophy and some of the protein crystal growths that we've had on board the space station have proven to be a treatment for that. Uh, and now they're I think phase three clinical trials now, um, and it looks like it can reduce you know about half. Uh, or it can slow down about uh, 
the growing potential for that by half. So that's going to you know prolong pe people's life that have that disease. That's pretty special to be involved in things like that. Other things that we really get involved in are taking pictures of planet Earth and natural disasters um, that happen you know all over our planets, unfortunately. But wildfires and uh, hurricanes and things recently that we've been able to photograph with cameras from the inside of the space station with us taking the picture as well as cameras on the outside. So we can help the first responders. We can help you know other uh, weather agencies in those kind of situations predict things and, and help other people on the ground. All told, there have been about 3,000 experiments performed aboard the ISS. The lion's share have been focused on biology and biotechnology and have spurred advances like the ability to better test saliva for active viruses. Now, I don't think I need to go into why that's a huge contribution in this day and age. The astronauts and cosmonauts on board the ISS have explored how a Bose-Einstein condensate behaves in microgravity, and how to grow crystals out of proteins for possible cancer treatments. With so much science that's been conducted on board, I wanted to know if Shane and Tama had any personal favorite experiments they'd witnessed or been a part of. You're going to do fluid physics one day, you're going to do medicine or biology uh, the next day. So, so that's, that's pretty special for us every day. Um, I think one that we actually really like that's uh, ongoing right now in that very module, uh, it's called Plant Habitat 4, and we're, we're growing some plants on board the space station. Um, because when we, when we venture further and deeper into space, we'll need to be able to grow our own food. Uh, so we have to study this on board the space station. And by doing so, we also identify how to make plants maybe more, uh, more resistant to to difficult conditions where water is scarce, when they're, they're liking what they usually get from the natural environment. Because as you can imagine up here, um, it's, it's actually difficult. There's no soil, you have to water the plant. It's, everything becomes much more complicated. But nevertheless, uh, we were able to, with the help from the scientists, to grow some uh, red hatch chili peppers that are actually really good looking. We haven't tasted them yet, um, but we like to look at them. We like to interact with them because it also reminds us of nature on the ground. There's not so many natural elements around us on board the space station, but this is one and that's why everybody likes it. They themselves are also an experiment. Some of the greatest minds in history have dreamed of the day humanity spreads beyond the Earth. And some, like Stephen Hawking, have even suggested it'll be necessary for the survival of our species. If we're ever going to become a spacefaring species, we need to understand what prolonged trips in space do to us. Now, I know, gravity seems like a drag, doesn't it? It always gets me down. Sorry. But weightlessness seems so much more appealing until you realize that there are things our body needs gravity for. Thanks to millions of years of evolving to survive on the Earth's surface, some systems in our body really rely on it to function properly. Thanks to the first extended trips to space, we learned that microgravity can take a serious toll on the human body in a surprisingly short amount of time. Astronauts lose an average of 1% of their bone density per month in space. Muscles atrophy faster, too, so ISS astronauts have to exercise for two and a half hours every day to keep their strength up. Microgravity also causes fluids to shift up into their heads, putting pressure on their eyes and potentially hurting their vision. And of course, there's going to the bathroom. How does one, you know, go when there is no down? I asked social media what questions they had for Shane and Tama, and unsurprisingly, this was the most common response I got. Now, normally, I wouldn't ask these very important space scientists for the dirty details, but as it happens, the ISS just got a brand spanking new toilet. 
It costs $23 million to design and build, and it's supposed to be more compact and efficient, making it better suited for future crewed missions to the moon and beyond. So I asked about what this new toilet means for astronauts on the go. That's a great question, and the new toilet is called the Universal Waste Management System, and the universal really is key there because we want to not just use it here. We're using it as a test bed here on the station, but we're going to use it on future missions to, uh, that are going to the moon and maybe even to Mars. But it's going well. We've been testing it out for one week now, uh, and I've been the sole tester, um, so uh, <laughs> things are going pretty well with that. Uh, and, you know, and it's great. The upgrade is kind of a, you know, it's smaller overall, smaller and lighter, which is great, um, and so we We've reduced the system almost by over half, actually, um, with the whole thing. That if you look at the toilet side by side with the current toilet, um, it looks bigger, but the whole overall system is much smaller. So we've figured out a way to do that, which we're going to need if we're going to go in a smaller capsule, like we're intending to go to the moon here in the next few years. There, I asked the very important people that I admire about Dookie. For you, I hope you're happy. And it'll also bring us to the future of the space station later, but we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, now that we're done with that bit, we're going to get off the pot. There are more concerns about prolonged space travel than what it does to our physical health. We also need to examine what it does to our mental state. I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but staying cooped up in a confined space for an extended period of time can really take a toll on a person's psyche. Astronauts on the ISS typically spend six months on the station at a time, and the only privacy they get is when using the aforementioned commode. Some astronauts, like Scott Kelly and Christina Cook, have spent close to a year on the station in a single stretch. Scott Kelly was a particularly useful case because he has an identical twin brother, Mark, who also was a former astronaut. I bet they have the proudest parents. Mark served as a control subject on Earth, allowing NASA to better understand how a year in space affected Scott's mind and body. Scott's body experienced stress due to oxygen deprivation, more inflammation, and his genes expressed themselves differently. Most of that went away once Scott was back on Earth, but about 7% of his genes didn't return to normal, and they could have a long-term effect on his immune system, DNA repair, and bone formation. As for his cognitive and psychological health, Scott's test scores in space were consistent throughout his whole year up there, which is a good sign. Interestingly, they dipped for six months when he got back to Earth, but the pain and difficulty that comes with readjusting to Earth's gravity may have something to do with it. Based on what they've seen, NASA is developing techniques to keep astronauts in a good headspace, like VR simulations of relaxing environments, and new LED lighting systems that keep astronauts on a 24-hour rhythm. Getting good sleep is really important for somebody's mental health, and it can be a little disorienting when you see 16 sunrises and sunsets in a day, like Shane and Tamadu. Future Mars explorers will have to deal with the planet's day, which is 37 minutes longer than Earth's, but... To me, that sounds like heaven. 37 minutes is, what, like four snooze buttons worth of extra sleep? That's perfect for me. Company can also make a long journey more bearable, especially if you can't download podcasts, wink wink. And if it wasn't clear, Shane and Tama were selected in part because of their personalities and their dynamic with each other and other crew members. NASA is refining how to pick the best crew possible to make sure the ISS doesn't become like one of those old sitcom episodes where squabbling roommates paint a line down the middle of their apartment. It's important that everybody up there can work together, regardless of their nationality or culture. 
It's also important that the space agencies and governments down here on the ground supporting them can work together too. So while the ISS may play a big part in the future of humanity, it also plays a part in promoting peace and cooperation on Earth today. I think it's pretty significant. I think, well, first of all, you realize that everything that's ambitious now, it happens at an international level and we need cooperation. Uh, it's very, very difficult to do ambitious things such as, you know, send humans to, uh, uh, to the moon, send humans to Mars uh, without international cooperation. So we'll need everybody to unite and to contribute something to a common endeavor, that's one. And then second, it's obviously not easy, you know, to, to, to agree because um, people are different, obviously, even for us within Europe, uh, we have to agree on, you know, anything before before we bring it up to the, the ISS partnership. So that's that's two levels um, of reaching an agreement. That's, that's not easy, but what it does, I think, is it forces you to focus on the things you have in common rather to focus on, on your differences. And that's great. And that's what we need. That's why we need, you know, corporations like the ISS that are hugely visible for everybody to see. And so that it forces the countries to, to contribute. It's very, very easy to disagree. Uh, people are different all over the planet. Everybody has their own interests and priority. It's not always easy to cooperate. So we need to we need to be an example for this. We need to set an example, and we need to force people to think about what they have in common rather than their differences. And that's what the ISS does every day. So, what does the future hold for the International Space Station? How much longer will this global partnership last? And what's the next big thing we're going to build in space? The ISS has been in orbit in one form or another for 23 years now. How many more does the station have? On paper. It doesn't look like many. The ISS is only possible because it's supported by five space agencies and 15 nations. That global partnership is set to end in 2024, which seems really soon. But you wouldn't know it based on the planned updates coming to the station. A major one just happened in July of 2021 when the new Russian module Nauka was added to the station. Nauka means science in Russian, so of course it includes a lab, as well as a living area and a toilet, as I'm sure many of you are happy to hear. It's the largest addition to the Russian side of the station since Zvezda was attached to the budding ISS over two decades ago. It might seem like strange timing to add such a large piece now, but Nauka was originally scheduled for launch back in 2007. It had some gremlins that kept causing technical issues and delayed its launch, and it seems like there are still some in there. The new module docked with the ISS without any issues, but after Nauka was secured to the ISS, the module's automated docking system seemed to think that it wasn't. Twice, Nauka has fired up its engines and spun the ISS around. NASA says it's nothing dangerous, but I'm sure it's not fun for the crew when their house makes an unscheduled flip. Aside from a fussy, overdue module, the ISS has some cutting-edge improvements on the docket. In 2022, the station will be adding new solar arrays. They'll be much more compact than the current massive and iconic arrays, but because they're much more efficient, they'll make a lot more power for the station. So much so that the plan is to place them in front of the existing panels. It'll reduce the power the old solars make, but the new panels will more than make up for it. And it's also just easier to attach them to something that's already tracking the sun. 
Finally, the station is scheduled to add another module, but this time not from Russia or NASA or any other space agency for that matter. This new piece is currently being built by Axiom Space, a private company based in Texas. Axiom Space plans to offer their section as a microgravity lab other companies can rent or an extremely high-end hotel room. And really, whoever takes a date there is going to put all the rest of us to shame. Axiom has big plans for their own section, stating they intend to double the usable volume of the ISS before eventually separating and operating on their own. Shane and Tama shared their thoughts on the future of the station with me. Yeah, ISS is going to be around for a while. Um, we certainly hope so. Um, I think you're going to see a bigger commercial aspect of it over the next decade or so, which is you know, really what we hope to do, uh, make it uh, more accessible to commercial companies to be able to use. Um, and so we'll see how that plays out. I think that's the, that's the plan, at least from what I've heard, um, as we kind of take that next step to, uh, with the Artemis program going to the moon. Uh, well, we may still have a presence here in low Earth orbit, but in general, we want to move out and let the commercial companies and private companies maybe take over low Earth orbit. As far as NASA is concerned, private companies taking over the ISS could work for them just fine. It would allow them to divest and focus their attention elsewhere. Where is elsewhere? The moon. In 2017, NASA announced its plans to return humans to the moon with the Artemis program. Fun fact, in Greek mythology, Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo, and aptly, the Artemis missions will send the first woman to the moon. One major piece of the Artemis puzzle is another space station called Gateway. But Gateway won't be orbiting the Earth, it'll be orbiting the Moon. Which I guess technically means it's also, you know, orbiting the Earth, but you know what I'm saying. Gateway could be an outpost that makes regular trips to the Moon possible, and it could be so much more. Artemis is targeting the Moon's South Pole as a destination, because the South Pole has water ice. That water could be used for drinking, reducing the amount of stuff astronauts have to bring with them each journey. Always a huge plus. But the water at the Moon's South Pole could have another very important use. It could be used to make rocket fuel. If everything comes together, Gateway really could be a crucial pit stop on the way to other parts of the solar system. But being so much farther away from the Earth than the ISS is, it's vital that everything on Gateway goes right. Fortunately, the ISS has given astronauts and space agencies more than two decades of experience building and supporting a megastructure in space. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic because um, today all the, the major space agencies in the world have the same goal and they're working in common to achieve the same goal, which has never happened before, I think, to my knowledge. Um, so I honestly think we'll get there in in no time. Um, and really, the point is is to go to the moon, but in a more uh, sustainable, in a more permanent way than than uh, NASA did um, in the in the seventies. Uh, because the the point is to establish a common presence. It's always the same. It's always the same pattern. Um, you send an explorer or explorers. You try to learn about the environment. Then you settle and you try to have people live there. And then you develop. And it's, it has always happened like this on the on the globe on the planet. Um, and it has happened like this for lower orbit. We've we've now been living. Astronauts have been living for more than 20 years uh, in lower orbit permanently. So now we've kind of mastered this environment. It's a big work. It's still very difficult, but we're planning to repeat the same pattern on the moon. We've had explorers go to the moon, and now we want to go and stay. And then we'll send explorers to Mars, and then we'll go and stay. Um, and part of that process is to learn how to make that happen. 
That's what we do every day on ISS. We're doing science that benefits the people on the ground, like we talked about before, but we're also doing exploration. We're trying to improve the technology. We're trying to improve the processes. We're trying to learn about the human body in space for extended periods of time. Uh, and all this that we're doing every day is going to enable us to go to the moon, uh, go to Mars. Shane mentioned the solar arrays, the toilet, the, uh, generally speaking, the life support system, all the systems that are going to be needed to, to take that major next step. We're testing them, we're establishing them, uh, we're learning about them on the space station today. Gateway will once again require a multinational effort to work, and the space agencies of Europe, Japan, and Canada are already on board with NASA. But you may have noticed one agency from the ISS partnership is missing. Russia will leave the group and has announced plans to partner with China to build a lunar research station of their own. 2024 may not be the definite end of the ISS. The United States has proposed extending its life to 2030. But reaching that goal depends on if the station and the political partnerships supporting it are structurally sound. And if I had to bet which one of those crumbles first, I know what my money's on. It's no secret that the relationship between Russia and the USA has been strained in recent years. Ironically, the station that was born when two enemies warmed up to each other may meet its end when the relationship goes cold once again. Regardless of when or why, there is one truth that we'll all have to come to terms with, and that is someday the ISS is going to come back down to Earth. It may be 420 kilometers up, but even that high, there are still air molecules bumping into it and slowing it down. Without a boost, it'll eventually fall down on its own, but that's really not the preferred method. Remember America's first space station Skylab I mentioned? Its operational life was supposed to be extended with a boost from the space shuttle, only the space shuttle wasn't ready by the time gravity and friction got the better of it. It came crashing back down in 1979, and despite the best efforts of NASA ground controllers to steer it into the Indian Ocean, some debris was scattered across southwest Australia. In typical Aussie fashion, the town of Esperance fined NASA $400 for littering. That's my favorite space anecdote of all time. For the ISS, the space shuttle would be helpful for avoiding another fine with a controlled deorbit, but once again, the space shuttle isn't flying. NASA says they're working out with its partners how to deorbit the station safely when the time comes, but there's no details on exactly how they'll do it. And maybe it's for the best, because personally, I'd really rather not picture the end. When it's all said and done, how will we look back on the ISS? Where does it fit in the ongoing story of the human race? Perhaps there's no better people to answer that question than those who actually built it and call it home. If you think about the engineering that was involved in creating the station for one, but then, you know, all these different countries that were involved that had to have pieces that put, you know, this module had to fit to an American module, which had to fit to a European module, and none of that was ever put together on planet Earth, right? So just things like that, and it, it just amazes me how um, these incredible engineers and scientists got together, created this plan, and it works so well. Um, um, at that level. So that's pretty neat, I think, overall as well, um, when you think about where this fits in. Um, it's an engineering marvel, for one. Um, it's an incredible place to do world-class research, which is what it's completely designed for, and we're in that research phase, and we have been the last several years. So. Uh, it's really special. I think it's significant, maybe more than people realize. Uh, the ISS is the time when uh, 
humans in general stopped being bound to, to Earth and they, they started to be a multi, not multi-planetary, but not strictly on one planet species. Like I said, we've been, we've had humans live in space for 20 years. Um, so now part of humanity is not only strictly on Earth, but also in space. Um, and the first step of this is really the ISS. That's the ISS, that, that big permanent space station that enables us to live in space. So the ISS is pretty significant because, you know, you know, 100 years when hopefully maybe the human beings are on other planets, then you'll look back um, and you'll you'll look at the ISS as the starting point of this. That's the time when humans freed themselves up from the cradle of the Earth and started really venturing to space to live, not just to see what it's like and come back. That was all the time I had with Shane and Tama. Our phone call started with them off the coast of Morocco, and by the time it ended, they had just passed Cape Town, South Africa. It was now officially the longest distance call I'd ever made. 20 minutes and they'd gone so far. And in 20 years, the ISS has too. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Seeker Plus. Be sure to tune in for the next one when we learn about learning. I think I'm gonna have a little lie down, maybe weep about a giant aluminum can in space, but after I get over that, I will see you next time on Seeker Plus.